Welcome to Plugged and Unplanned. It's Tony Nash back with you again. I'm the CEO of Booktopia and I have a guest author, survivor, life in the SAS, Mark Wales. Welcome to the program. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me. Survivor. You survived and you made it <laughs> to this, this podcast. So um, I've got your book in front of me. Um, came out in May, uh, published by Pam McMillan. So congratulations, mainstream, mainstream publisher. Um, how many books have you written? Just, just the one so far. And, uh, you know, Pam McMillan, they do a great job. They're a really good publisher. They, I think they really did hard work on the quality of, of what we produced and we spent a lot of time working on it. So I was really happy with the final result. Yeah. I think that's interesting. One of the things that, um, budding authors don't realize even, um, for, I mean, I haven't even written a book yet. I'm sure one day I will. Um, but like they don't realize that even the top uh, practitioners of writing have editors um they they rip, rip apart the the storyline they challenge it and you've got to go back it's hard work isn't it to get it to like what you started with and what you ended up with it's yeah yeah it was, it, i think i took about four months on the first manuscript and then we spent the next 12 months really um doing the structural and line and copy edit so and i think that's really where the magic happens because you kind of once you've got that manuscript you've got at least a block of stone to work with and then you spend the next year kind of chipping away at it with someone else and that's i think you really need another set of eyes or multiple sets of eyes to get the best out of what the the story could be yeah so i've got to ask um as i always do of debut authors so here's here's a copy and it's with your english teacher it's like they're going, they're going, Mark wrote a book. You're kidding me. Or well, he wrote a book. He was a storyteller. Like, what do you reckon um, um, that your teachers are saying? I, th I think, I think some of the teachers would be surprised. Um, I, I was a rascal at school sometimes, but also I, I was, I'm the sort of person that once I really latch onto something, I generally see it through. Um, and I think to go through that background that I did in the military, you kind of have to have that. You have to have a bit of, determination and i think the book is no different it was just sustained uh application over a long period like it's not hard to do the book if you turn up every day and do a bit but it's really hard if you think you're going to sit down and type it in in two weeks you know i think that's it's not realistic i think it's at least 18 months of sustained application i was probably doing three or four hours a day i think for for that long so not a lot of work but you're focusing i think when you're doing it so let's i mean okay so survivor but subtitled life in the sas um and more importantly on on the front of the cover forging resilience finding purpose mastering transformation which i think is me as a ceo of booktopia that's that's what draws me in that um that you're going to uncover your your particular journey around around understanding and and contemplating and mastering those mastering those those things but when you think back to your school and 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 your early life, you probably talk about it in your book, but it is one of the, is it one of those things where, I mean, for the rest of us, the SAS is just like, I don't know, like the Olympics and we've just had the Olympics or the Olympics is going on the Paralympics now. Right. So, so um, it's, it's one of those things where you go, Oh, well, you know, that's for them and, and not for me. Um, when you were growing up, was that something that you, because of who you were, you felt like you wanted to, you 
could get into that or that you would do that or um, and are you always drawn to the SAS or or military what how did that no work? my I mean I had a grandfather that fought against the Japanese in Moritai in World War II and apart from that there was really no no one else in my family that did it I was drawn to it because I'd seen some images of soldiers in in the UK that SAS soldiers in the Iranian embassy siege and they're recovering they're basically doing a building assault to recover hostages and I thought that's such a good way to, you know, such a good job to do something to, to rescue people kind of in their darkest hour. So that's kind of what drew me to it. And then when I did my homework on the SAS, I found out that Australia had our own unit, but to get there, you had to go through the military and pass this selection course, which is really hard. So it seemed like when I first heard about it, it would be a real stretch to try and pull it off because it is a long road. There's a lot that can go wrong. Um, even on the selection course, it's it's kind of hard to be in that last 15 or 20% that gets picked. But um, you've got to, you know, if you if you want something like that, you've got to try. And I spent 10 years just, like I said, over just small efforts for long periods of time to try and improve my skills. And um, it took a long time, but eventually I got to the selection course. And because I wanted to do it, I was able to stick out the bad moments that, that inevitably come along, whether it's selection or building a business or being in a sports team, there's always those bad patches. And I think if you really want it, you can stick out those patches. Mm. And um, and I, I give full credit actually to the the editors at Pam McMillan and Alex Lloyd was, was my editor, but he came up with that subtitle, which I thought was really clever because really I think that's what the, the value proposition of the book is. It's just a story about those things, about kind of a bit of perseverance and resilience and, you know, anyone can really do it if they want to. And, and so then when you... I mean, you had options. <clears throat> Anyone who who has that kind of um, ambition, personal, um, you know, personal quest to to do whatever you wanted to do. Were there any other things that you you had at that time that you plan B or that you said, well, I I can only do this. I can't, but I can't do that. I, I did have a plan B. I wanted to. I'd read Jurassic Park when I was in grade nine, and I thought I want to make dinosaurs for a living, and so. <laughs> I wanted to be. I wanted to apply for bio, uh, sorry, genetic engineering at UWA. So I'd applied for that too, and I ended up getting the military. I actually got UWA as well, but the military was was the one I wanted to go to. So I went to the Defence Academy in Canberra, which is a an undergrad degree there too. Well, you can always go back to that. You always go back. (laughs) Can always go back. Bucket list that you got to tick things off. (laughs) Exactly. Still want to make a dinosaur, but yeah. Yeah. So right, so you so you had things, but you in the end it was pretty pretty certain. And your family, the support of your family, given that um, not anyone else, it's like always feels like people who end up in the military. There's a lot more um, people that are close to them who have been in the military that you kind of get um, not inside information, but just some comfort around that's a that's a um, a career path. But no one else. So that, were they supportive, or they think you're crazy? Uh, that was support. I don't think they realized exactly what I had in mind. They thought I just wanted to go to the military. And, and a couple of times they were like, you know, the military is, you can be kind of a, a bit of a, uh, you know, foot slogger if you do that. And it's not necessarily a prestigious job. And I said, yeah, that's true. But in order to get to the good jobs, you have to go through that, you know, the, the, the phases that aren't as glamorous. And I think once I kind of explained that to them, they understood. And when I started going through it all, I think they, they saw so there was some method to the madness. I had had a plan in mind. Mm-hmm. 
And and so then you're in you're in the SAS, and I, I don't want to give away anything really in the book because I want people to buy it. <laughs> get to your bookshop and buy it, or buy it online at Booktopia or whoever whoever you normally shop with. Um, you, you can tell when when you even just look at the pictures on the inside that there's there's going to be some interesting uh, insights for the rest of us who don't get to travel that path. It was like um, I did the audio book, listened to Barack Obama's uh, book. Um, um, promised land and um i mean it's a big thick book um mm. massive book and it was like i learned so much about what happens on the inside of the white house um, wow you see the movies and the you know the tv shows but but uh, i guess there's going to be something in here i mean there, there are a lot of books about the sas and about um you know um kind of extractions and and war zone and all that all that kind of um activity but from from your perspective some someone's um doing some gardening work outside his <laughs> office right now so if anyone hears background it's, we're not under fire right? um it's just people maintaining the building um so just in yeah, in terms of what you know what you're disclosing obviously you can't disclose military you know secrets or things that happen but what what are we going to get when we start to unpick and and read the pages of your book I think I tried to make it a little bit different in the sense that I, I felt like a lot of military biographies do touch on uh, the mechanical military aspects of being in a war, kind of what it's like to deploy and go and hit a battle and come back and go again. Um, so there are a lot of books that were, were always going to do that better than me. So I thought I, I really want to concentrate on the the human impact of fighting. I want to talk about how I felt about it before I went when I was there. And then when I came home, what it was like trying to recover from that and then uh, redeploy repeatedly, because it was actually pretty hard. I don't think I anticipated the, the human cost of it. Um, and we were, we were sent back a lot. I think the special forces were leaned on really heavily to do a lot of the fighting in Afghanistan, which was, I don't think in hindsight, it was very smart. And I think you're seeing the results of some of that now, mm. but um, yeah, we were sent constantly back into the fray and that has a huge impact. And I went, I did four tours in, you know, four years and uh, I was burned out by the end. I was totally burned out. Uh, so I wanted to talk about that side of it, what it was like to go through all that um, to survive and be in the battles and help lead troops and then um, have to fight a second battle when you come out to reestablish your life on your own terms and not have that fighting kind of dominate your, your psyche um, as does happen a lot of the time, happens mm -hmm. to a lot of people. And so that was a, a painful road, but I thought that was an important part to include in the book. So I did spend a lot of time talking about how I moved on from the military and, and what I did after. Mm. I can only imagine it's, it's um, in fact, it's di difficult to imagine, but there's, there's glimmers of insight there that it's kind of, it's almost like if you now know now what you know and if you could whisper in the ear of the young mark about to embark on that would you still say mate go for it it's it'd be it, it, it's a it's a it's a gift um or would you say look do it but I, I need you to know all of this um so you're better prepared um and how, how do you like because this every every month every year there's a new crop of mark wales wanting to go yeah. into the SAS and do it again. So is it is it always going to be um, 
that treacherous and 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 that that costly yeah i think it's worth it's really worth doing because it is such a it really does prepare you for life in general just some of the skills you get and the, how much you grow and how much you put under pressure it is really good um <clears throat> when it's chronic and long term it can have damaging effects there's no doubt um but on the balance of things it was totally totally worth it um it was worth the pain and the grief and the the hardships just to sit here now and go i can't believe i survived that and um i'm grateful that i had all my friends with me um i'm grateful that i came through the other side now i have a family and i've got all my limbs and i'm, I'm in one piece mm. um not everyone got that not everyone gets it um i was pretty lucky so i think um now the rest of my life i have an even better appreciation for what for i have mm. and and how how far are we like you you you're here today because you're able to process what happened work through it um grieve um and then be able to put it in your rear vision mirror and move on is that something that um the military are starting to get right um or programs from the health department like is there is there now a way of of going into battle and experiencing the atrocities and the and the things that you literally have to look at and then and smell and and um recover from do we have do we have programs in place now because of so much of it and and we're getting of course better at everything that we do or is it still back at ground zero and it's really up to the individual person to i, I think uh, yeah i think it's much more sophisticated than it used to be i think they do a lot they do focus a lot more on on preparing people mentally and selecting people that can that can handle high psychological um high levels of psychological stress that was already there when i went there but i think they're getting better now at preparing people and also treating people when they come back but i think people have we've got in our heads because it's been in the military's interest to sell this narrative that somehow war can be prosecuted in a, in a clean way um using precision weapons and standoff munitions and you know night fighting capabilities and drone strikes it's uh war hasn't really changed that much there's more domains now you've got the cyber domain and space and a, a few more uh, bits of technology but fundamentally the the idea that we're imposing our will on another group of people by force that's been a constant in warfare for as long as humans have been around mm -hmm. so that that's the damaging part it's the fact that you're doing something that runs against your own moral coda and society's moral code that's where and they talk a bit about moral injury now if you're doing something repeatedly that you've been taught not to do as a child or you know as part of your values it's hard to reconcile the two and that's where a lot of people have trouble later and i think from what i understand and i've heard this kind of secondhand the military they're working on that much more now but um yeah it's an issue it's some something that people especially young soldiers have to be aware of and that's part of the reason i wrote the book is to share that side of it because if you don't share the bad side like how are you going to believe people when they tell you it's it's a good experience um it's hard to but if i i felt like if i was a bit more open and shared both sides of it you would get a better picture some 13 year old reading is going to have a better picture of what they're in for so when you when you look at those maybe you never do um or your mates in the forces don't do either but you know i 
I like action movies. So <laughs> um, when you look at them, do you go, oh my God, that's embarrassing. Like that'll never happen. Or it's just, you know, this is far, so far from the truth or, or and, and do you not even watch them because it's like, it's cringeworthy or, or do you, when you look at them, do you go, actually, that's like, that gives people a bit of a window into, 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 you know, how, how it really is. No, I think the filmmakers that care about this stuff get it right and they get the right people in and the right advisors and the right equipment and they they do those things properly. And I'm seeing that now. I think in the late 70s and 80s, there were a lot of films that also got it right because there are a lot of people coming out of Vietnam that went to the film industry. So that's happening a bit now. I've got mates and even I've been helping consult with people about um, how soldiers behave in films, how, you know, what they wear and how they talk and uh, the gestures they make. Little things like that um, really help build the authenticity of what people are trying to convey in a story if it involves soldiers. So I think uh, I think a lot of it, there's a lot of garbage out there, but there's some really good ones too. I think uh, people are getting better at depicting that side of it. Um, and more importantly, not glamorizing it because it's not glamorous, you know, it's some of it's very rough. Mm. So of all the senses, the five senses, sight, sound, touch, taste, or smell. What, what's the one Because I can, I can only imagine that smell is something that is particularly unique into warfare and the smell of death and the, and what's going on. Is that, is that one that, um, because we don't have that as part of, as part of our, um, when we compose a scene in our, in our mind or we're watching, like, is that one of the biggest things that's missing when we when we think about um, being out there? Or I think it's the yeah, smells a hard one. I tried to put some of that in the book, you know, talking about the smell of the earth or munitions or uh, you know an Afghan home. It's hard to convey that stuff, I think, to the uninitiated. But um, it's an important part of the story. And the other the things that are that really stood out to me is the the sound. And you always hear this like the sound of battle, but the sound almost becomes sound and touch become the same thing. I remember my clothes rattling from the force of explosions. And so you are kind of getting a, a number of senses coming together at once. And it is a lot to take in, but as highly trained soldiers, we get exposed to that in training. So repeatedly when you, when you're going through that a lot and then you land in a battlefield and you keep doing it, you're already used to it. So it doesn't, doesn't throw you too much psychologically, but it's certainly, a, you know, it's an experience that you won't forget or uh, air strikes and um, cannon strike and all those things and IEDs um, to see them and hear them and feel them is, is um, yeah, pretty incredible. So your book is really about the future though, isn't it? It's not about, it's not, I mean, you've got to take what you experience. We all do. We all have various life experiences that um, we draw on that uh, makes us who we are today. Um, but um, how how long did it really take you to kind of go through that process of unshackling yourself from your past to be able to feel like you were breathing fresh air again and and you were you were coming out of hibernation or you were like was was that ages? Yeah, it took longer than I thought. I was like, oh, this will take a year or two. Um, after I left the military, I went to business school in the US. And so for the first time in since I was 17 or 18, I wasn't in charge of people and I was able to kind of relax a bit. And I spent two years sleeping, basically. I, I was sleeping nine or 10 hours a night. 
<clears throat> just trying to recover. And slowly I was kind of coming back to life over that period. And then um, I spent another few years in the corporate sector trying to find some purpose there. And even that was kind of exhausting too. So I don't feel like I fully recovered from it until after I'd kind of, I, I did a, t- a short stint on TV in 2017, which was kind of seven or eight years after I'd left. And then I started to kind of recover a bit. And then I had a family. I, I thought about writing in 2017 um, and wasn't able to, and then met my wife and we had a kid. And and then after all that, then I felt like I was in a position to write. And I'm glad I kind of waited because I felt like I had better perspective on, uh, on what I've been through. Mm. So d- just to catch something you just said there, I mean, for some people going to business school is like going into <laughs> yeah. more more battles. Um, I, it, it's you know, like for me, it was like, not that I couldn't think of anything worse, um, but in terms of why did you choose that? What was it about going and doing that um, that appealed to be a potential pathway out of where you were? Uh, because it would be a almost complete burning of my boats. I knew if I went to the US and I committed to a two-year program to study business, I knew that was going to change the direction I was headed in. There was not going to be any temptation if I stayed in Australia to stay in the same networks and hang out with soldiers and wish I was back in the unit. Um, I'd be in a new world, in a new place with a new, with new ideas. And, and that would be uh, what would set me on a different course. So it was really an attempt to break from the military and to do it in a way that I knew there was no going back. And when, when you went there and you, you created new, circles of friends and you you got into the classroom and you were writing reports or essays or doing projects did did you try and keep your military background um hidden or private or just you didn't speak about it because that way you it felt that you could just start afresh uh no it's definitely in the u.s people are interested in that um people value it quite a bit uh and they want it they want to hear people are curious they want to hear about about that and how you do things in the military and what's what's so unique about it. Um, so I didn't, I definitely didn't hide it. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure I was kind of working hard on my own ideas and my own kind of uh, my own forays into business, which had kind of links to the military. But I really wanted to kind of work on that with other people because I found that exciting and something different. Mm. And and so then, when you think about then the road to to transformation to be where you are today how much of it was um just simply quiet contemplation or going for a long walk or a meditating or just being silent versus just getting into a new activities and going to work and and just being part of because you'd hate to think that it was um, trying to like to get real transformation for me, it'd be like not trying to cover it up and be busy doing something else. And then finally it's like, Oh yeah, that was, yeah, that was my other life. I, I was in the SAS. It was like, it doesn't feel like it, you can get there that way. It do, actually feels like you need to, to really sit with it and then be able to get out of the mud pool and, and clean yourself off. How, how did how did it go for you? Yeah, we talk about it in the book, but um... yeah, that's that's the perfect analogy. <laughs> climbing out of the mud pool, um, because when you're in it or you're too close to it, it's, it's just sometimes hard to 
uh, I guess, process things or reflect on things or try and think of a new way ahead. And I think we're guilty of that a lot, you know, in the professional world in the West, we just, we're running hard all the time. And I think I didn't come up with the right questions and the right answers until I kind of stepped back and said, is this the path you really want to be on? Is this what you want to do for good? Um, What does this look like five or 10 years down the road? Um, When I started asking myself that, I thought, you know what? I I don't want to do more of the same. I think if I switch into something else and start over again, I can build a new career, even though that's going to be really painful. I think it'll be a a better life if I do that. Um, And so that's kind of the risk I took. And, And that did take a lot of, thinking about what I wanted in life. And there's also, you hear a lot about positive psychology. I'm kind of, you know, I'm sure it works, but I'm a big believer in uh, negative thinking as well. If you're in a situation that you don't like and you don't want to be in, um, don't fool yourself that it's a good thing. Don't try and make the best of it. Um, change it. And I've, I've done that um, a number of times in my life. I'm like, I don't want to be here. And if, if it's a bad enough feeling, I'll then take steps to try and change it. And that's what that's what sent me to business school um, is after all that time in the military uh, and fighting a war that was I knew we were unlikely to win. I said, I've kind of lost trust in the people that send us away. So why don't I just do um, take my own path? Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't always believe in rose colored glasses. Sometimes you've got to see your situation as it is. And sometimes we're not always in a good situation in life. I think that's fine. Yeah, um, if you're willing to try and do something about it. Yeah. So, that, I mean, you're really talking about your intuition there and, and yeah. your gut feel and you, so to me that, I mean, call it negative feeling. It's just actually being honest with, yeah. you know, it's, uh, taking the taking the information which is the intel it's taking the intel which i'm sure you guys um do all the time i do it in business it's like what intel do i have and and what does my gut tell me about the situation do we extract or or do we go forward absolutely yeah and sometimes it's it's worth um to your point it's worth walking away from a battle to, to win a war or to save your resources for another battle that you think is going to be better um I, I don't believe in bloody mindedness. Sometimes you got to you got to step away from things that aren't worth fighting, so you can you can win the campaign or the war. Definitely. Absolutely. And mm. I mean, in business, they say only five percent of businesses um, that are started are, are running it after five years. Something wow. Like that. So yeah, a lot of the time when I speak to people, it's because they are so fixated that they have this vision of of what the business should be, but not constantly checking to go is that what people want exactly uh, do I need to pivot do it is and and you've got to be able to let go of of some of those some of those things but just on that then because i'm very horizon point driven so everything about booktopia and its success or other things that i've accomplished in my life it's about thinking about that horizon point and and moving to it and and when you did move away from the military and you started to um you said it before you started to ask what do i want in my life and then you started those, those that constellation of of ideas and thoughts started to crystallize for you but to do to then do that and then for it to be kind of hollow and not fulfilling um you, you do need to check in with that so was there anything about going to business school or then going you, you kind of you didn't say it but it sounded like you went and did, then got a corporate you got some corporate jobs and 
but it didn't sound like that really um, that that really hit the sweet spot for you. How, you've you were still trying to work out what you want to do. Is that right? What what yeah. sort of industry did you end up in? Yeah. So I, I went when I was in business school. I knew I wanted to do run my own business, but I also knew I didn't really have the the runs on the board to, to be able to do that. Excuse me, right away. Um, and so I. I decided to apply for consult management consulting, management and strategy consulting, because I knew um, while I was figuring out my next steps, that was going to be really good, a really good apprenticeship. And I think that if you, when you go to business school, you kind of learn just enough to be kind of dangerous to yourself. If you're doing a career switch, um, <laughs> if you're not a business person already. So I wanted to do a startup, but I also knew that it wasn't necessarily going to pay the bills right away. And so I applied to the consulting firm saying, hey, this will be good training. Um, on the side, I can build my own startup and, and at least have that experience. And I think it was, it was definitely the right choice, but I was in a, uh, you know, it was a shadow career. It was something I was doing because I, I felt like it was a smart choice, um, but it didn't call to me in the way that some other uh, things do, like building a small team, like e-commerce or apparel building and, and branding, that stuff I really love. Um, the, the consulting side, I didn't love as much and I was, I was bloody grateful to have a job, but I knew that it, it wasn't going to be for the long term. Mm. So I think, and I think it's just that, that point of like, you're not necessarily going to land on exactly what you love right away. I think sometimes the journey of getting to that point is just as good and just as beneficial as, you know, the, the destination you're headed for. Mm. I'm talking to Mark Wales, the author of Survivor Life in the SAS and, First time author, debut author, published by Pam McMillan, came out in May. Um, and must be frustrating to um not be be in lockdown. I mean, I guess when it came out, we weren't in lockdown, so you had a a moment for it to for the book to get out there and and to be um doing uh, interviews and and signings and things like that. Is that what happened? Yeah, I did um I, I was I did a really hard push on direct to consumer marketing of the book. So I, I had my own website. I drove traffic to it. I had an email sign on list. I had um, Facebook ads running to look alike audiences that were like the people that had signed up um, to my page. So I was working hard at doing direct to consumer marketing. Um, and I was trying to build those touch points. Like people need to be exposed to something a lot before they take action on it. And so I was just trying to get people to see it so that if they do walk past in a bookstore or in a, you know, airport shop or they see it on Booktopia, they're like, oh, I've seen this guy. I've heard I've heard about the book. I've heard him speak on radio. I'm interested. And so that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to really get people some more exposure to it. Um, and I think that worked pretty well. And I, I know, I mean, in the first week, I sold about a thousand copies, which was really good. And then I think by the second week, we, we uh, I think Sydney hit the lockdown or Melbourne did. Melbourne hit a lockdown. And then we've had more lockdowns since. And that's I mean, it's frustrating because you really only get one shot at your book launch and you know the curve is, you know, definitely favours the start of that launch. Um, but at the same time, it's been the case across the whole book industry, really. I mean, it's people trying to release their book in a pandemic they've been waiting to do for 20 years. Like, that's that's a hard thing for them. But, uh, you know, there are other mechanisms to sell. There are a lot of good channels to sell to people and to connect people with with your book and I think my, my point is to anyone who's either writing and wants to write and like think about those, those channels because the traditional publishers won't necessarily do that. 
um, they'll sell to wholesalers, but you can be the one that really promotes your book. We absolutely endorse that. We're a publisher ourselves and we tell our authors that um, you don't realize how much of it is, is yep. your, your effort. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately um, that's where we are today with um, social influences. And, and oddly enough though, um, a, a great best-selling book um, quite often does not do well in the first three months. Mm, right. Really? Yeah. Over, it's over time. So yep. what happens is the book comes out and then it's a great book and people keep telling people and then the word gets out there. Some of the biggest, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of, of copies, it's not because it, it launched. That's what the publisher does and everyone's really excited. But a good book is a good book. And your book, in particular for those that are um, considering the military, which is a lot of people every year, uh, those in or those who have left, that's that's who you want to get in the hand of. Then there's also the rest of us who are just trying to to reforge their lives and be able to to go. Um, all right, that pandemic sucked, um, and it's up to me. And I had a good job. I lost my job, or this job is. I realize you know, I want more from life. I want to. I want to feel like I've. We only get one shot, so let's accomplish more. So. Um, that's you know that uh, that's what I get a sense what your book's about and and it's really you, you want to know that you're still selling 200 copies a month in four years because mm. um, rather than oh yeah that was that one book that um, we he wrote and then it's out of print and that it's that that's that has to be the goal because because it's about um, I mean you wrote it with certain people in mind obviously um, particular those that um, are coming. Um, out of the military, going into the military, but then also the rest of us who are, you know, on the battlefield in business or in life, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but basically, people that are, you know, it's a, it is a perfect time. There's a lot of people have been forced in this pandemic to change their life. Um, that they haven't necessarily had that choice. So, if something like this helps, then then that's a great thing. And I think your point about uh, the the marketing helps, but really the quality of the product is what is the quality of the book is what is going to sell it. And that personal recommendation of someone saying, you know, you've got to read this. It's important. Um, you're right. That's what I think would, and you'd have the data on it. That's what will give a book a, a long life and, uh, and bring the most impact. Absolutely. Now um, we don't have a lot of time left, but is there anything like we didn't touch on in the book that you thought, Oh, we never really talked about that, but you'd like to share just to give people an insight to what might be there? Um, probably one is that, especially for people that are leaving the military or sport or any sort of institution, I, I talk a lot about, uh, what I learned about starting my own business. Um, you know, it's, I think I learned more doing that than I did in my MBA. I think getting your hands dirty, trying to start a business, even with the understanding that, you know, the, the probability is that it's not going to survive. Um, that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not going to you'll learn a lot and you're going to be a more valuable person at the end. Even if it fails, you're going to be better trained. You're going to have a better understanding of your own capabilities. Um, so anyone who's thinking about it, about you know, about starting their own business, I'd encourage you to do it um, even on the side, get a full-time job if you need to, to pay the bills and just keep working on your own business on the side. Cause that's kind of where the magic can happen. You're not making bad decisions because you're under pressure financially. You can really think about what you want to achieve and just, 
take your time, just enjoy building something small and, and helping people out. I think that's uh, a, a lot of fun. It makes a lot of sense to me having, well, I, I never went to university and I never did an MBA. And so um, it's all about being on the, on the field. One of the things for me about being in business um, is that things come out of left field when you least expect it. And you got to be able to say, bring it on. I never expected that. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I watch a lot of action movies, but um, I'm I'm pretty confident that that is one of the things that um, when you're on the battlefield, when you're in in a you know, in some sort of situation, that that is the most important thing that you are dealing with is that um, everything that you didn't expect. You got a plan, but then it's when things didn't work your way. So when you think about business school um, versus SAS military and you were to have a, a pie and you wanted to carve up, you know, what I learned doing my MBA versus, and what I use in running my business versus what I learned in military, it's surely it's got to be heavily weighted towards you using most of the stuff used in the military, which had nothing to do with business. Well, it's funny because they're both, uh, they're both exactly the same human activity. You, you're cooperating as a team to try and achieve a goal and there's all sorts of things that are that you're up against. And that's true for the military. It's true for sport and business. And um, it's funny how much the principles between them are all aligned. Like if you, you've got to have a really clear mission, you've got to prioritize your team and you've got to work towards that mission together. And the last thing is you've got to look after yourself as you do it. Um, and that's true no matter what the endeavor is. So, yeah, I feel like the, I, I was able to see those themes um, in, in both those disciplines. Mm. And it, it's funny how they were, they were both as relevant to each other as, as anything. Mm, interesting. Hey, and, and so then share with us, um, what, what's your business today? What, what, what business do you do? Uh, so I do too. I do uh, corporate speaking, which revolves around mostly uh, resilience and transformation. So I speak to a lot of companies about that. I do um, keynote consulting and workshops and my other business is kill capture, which is a, uh, tough luxury e-commerce uh it's men's apparel i sell it make everything in new york city and uh, i sell it direct to consumer and it's uh you know high grade leather jackets and uh jeans and accessories and yeah i really enjoy it. it's all based on the values of, of special ops that kind of mission focus so mm. it's a different take on on streetwear very nice <laughs> very nice so we're coming towards the end um and i've started a bit of a theme over the last few months in terms of getting my authors to ask me some questions. So to give um, the, the reason why I do that um, being the CEO, but um, my, my first slide in my keynotes is the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. And so with someone who's a knowledge expert, um, you're talking to me, I think what people, what I want people to hear is the question that you are asking me. The answer is also, good too but someone who who has the skills that you have what questions are you asking of someone um and then for people to learn how to ask better questions so what what have you got me well i think uh from your side like obviously you started booktopia which was you know there was there was a huge gap in the market but what when you what do you see as being the great thing about booktopia that you're able to deliver every day that a lot of other people can't so first of all, 
there's two answers to that question. The first thing is, is that when I started Booktopia, people said, what do you want to start a bookstore for? There's Amazon, <laughs> there's Borders, there's Dimmix, there's Angus and Roberts, and you're too late. Now people say to me, oh, it's lucky you got in early. So <laughs> there was no light bulb moment, I can assure you. It was a side project. So I hadn't, I really had no idea about um, how big the opportunity was. It was just seriously one thing led to another and critical mass just kept going, all right. It's, uh, it's probably like um, running a marathon, but not knowing really when it ends. It's just, well, I've just got to get to the next light post or I've got to get to the next hill. Um, it was a bit like that. The, the other part to that, um, you know, I just said before, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask is every single day for 17 years. It's like one question, what do our customers want? Mm. So when you think about the apparel that you guys, what you just, you just mentioned to me, it's like, yeah, you checked it out. You made a couple of things. They were duds. You then made one which you thought was so-so, but man, it just it just went crazy. People wanted that. It's like, oh, I didn't realize people wanted that. So there's just so many things to that. Even at the moment, working from home. So um, we're in lockdown now, but when we come out of lockdown, we've been up in, since January, so it's now August. So um, one day from home, four days in the office, but the market's moving. So it's like, okay, in the last, yesterday I sent an email to everyone, after doing consultation, it's two days working from home, three days working from the office. But the main thing to me, and I said to the team, it's, it's very simple to work out where you should be, is if it's best for your customer and the Booktopia customers for you to be working at the office, the answer is obvious. So um, if it's better for you to be working at home, why? Well, because I can't, I'm just trying to get through these spreadsheets or I've got to do this piece of work please don't distract me. I, I want yeah. to, I can be effective at home. Great. Right. Cause you're going to be furthering your career. You're going to be adding more value. So, so it's always comes down to that. doesn't matter you know, what we're doing. It's, is, is it best for our customer? And so that, um, that's, that's how I'd answer that one. And another one I've got, which is a bit more specific to books, I think like what for you really makes a distinctive, really high impact book compared to just, standard kind of run of the mill books because so many are published every year but only a tiny percentage really really run away really deliver a lot of value what what for you is the difference between those two yeah there's there's a couple of things there one is that um i got to interview we published a book called uh, the birth of a brand um it's about ugg ugg boots and and brian smith the guy that took Ugg boots from Australia to America mm. and, and sold, them, sold them in America and ended up becoming a billion dollar industry. He sold out when it was 20, 20 million in turnover. So quite, quite young, quite early in, in the journey, but he, he was a surfer or he is a surfer. He's, he's an older guy now living in California, but um, when, when he and I were talking, it was like um, he, he was, and I asked that kind of, how do, how do you know? Like what, and he keep talk, kept talking about the societal shift. You got to be looking for the societal shift. And he kind of described it. I'm not a surfer, but um, like sitting out the back there on a board and, you know, a surfer can look at all the, those little humps coming in and, and go, that's the one. Yeah. Why? Because they've been doing it for so long. I'm yeah. not a surfer. They just look like little humps, and, you know, and, and only when it gets to the shore, ah, oh, right, of course, that was the way, look how good that one was compared to the one before or the next three, because they, so in, in a similar way, it's like, so being able to understand what wave it is to write, and that just mm. takes 
experience it. You, you just got to be immersed in the system. You got to be looking at 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 all the different things that are going on. So first of all, um, like a Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, I never read it, but um, for those that read it, and there's tens of millions that did, it was at the right book at the right time. Yeah. Maybe today it wouldn't do as well for mm. whatever reason. So timing is something, and being able to ride the wave is another. The the other thing is, um, like Scott Pape, who wrote the book The Barefoot Investor, mm. um, he did the opposite to you. And I'm for any budding authors, and this is just good feedback for you, Mark, as well. He he did not um, uh, do any marketing to his yep. website, to his website to sell his books. He did not. He reached out to us in 2016, a month or so before the book barefoot investor was going to be launched and he said i'm i'm launching my book i'm i'm going to um send an email out to my customer my customer base which was 140,000, which is quite a lot of people following his blog and his financial advice and i want to send them a link to buy it from your website um and and why did he do that because he wanted every single sale to be registered in the Nielsen book scan numbers, which meant mm. that it would be re registered as a sale, which therefore it might hit the bestseller list. So he sends an email out um, a few weeks before launch to his customer base on the weekend. And it was November. So I it was Christmas and I'm, I'm logging into sales, looking at what's going on over the, you know, over the, this period of time. And I log in on the Saturday, 10 o'clock at night. And I think at that time, our best sales in one day, um, would have been like five or 6,000 orders or something like that. And we were at like 10,000 orders or 11,000 or something. And I ring up my IT guy and I said, we're being hacked. And he, and he goes, really? I said, yeah, we're at 11,000 orders. And he goes, hold on a second. Oh, it's this book, Barefoot Investor. And and he, I go, oh yeah, the marketing guys, they tell me about that. Yeah, there's a promotion going out about that book. We sold 23,000 copies over the weekend. Wow. Right? We said nothing. John Wiley, the publisher, said nothing. Scott Pape said nothing. And then mm. three weeks later, you know, the books came in. We shipped them all out within 24 hours. And on the Saturday night, we loaded up our file to the Nielsen BookScan database. And then the next week, the numbers come out. And we had 98% market share. And wow. everyone in the industry just went, what the, you know, like <laughs> swearing, like what, what the hell happened? He, like nobody had any idea. And it just went and to number one and stayed at number one because every sale, even though he could have sold it himself and got more money for himself on those 23,000, he would have probably made an extra $15 a copy, but he ended up selling one and a half million units because mm. he understood the system. Yep. And so I, I know an author um, and he, he sent an email out and he's got five daughters and he sold 2000 copies and he and the daughters, wrapped each book and sent them went down to the post office and sent them out but no. none of those sales made it into yeah into the the bestseller list even though 2300 were sold from the rest of us it would have just got that little bit higher so it's really important that when you do all these things with social etc to make sure even though you personally will get more money because you sold it direct and that's great but if you want to really crack it and you're doing all this um these social media and getting people to on TikTok or whatever people are using to try and um, to fire it up, make sure that each sale is going to somewhere where the, the sale is being recorded. That's super, super important. Mm. 
that's one we really try and educate our authors on. Yeah, because we're not authors are not booksellers. They're two very different things. And yeah, packing and selling your own stuff is hard work and there's there's not really anything in it. I bought 50 of my own, but I was sending, I actually spoke to your guy, Arthur Malcoon, and got directed people to Booktopia as well. But um, Scott sounds like he did a phenomenal job. I know. Well, I mean, he had 140,000 followers mm, and it had been seven huge. years since he had written a book. So he, mm. um, and the other thing he did, which was interesting, and this is to share with everyone, is that if you bought the book from Booktopia on that weekend as part of the pre-promotion, you would, and and get a proof of purchase, you got a code to a one-hour uh, free video valued at $199 um, wow. exclusive. So, I mean, you're, That's good all of you guys all have content, right? So you could create your own little video, which is a value to something. And then all of a sudden, a $25 book becomes $200 worth of value. Mm. And therefore, um, you you incentivize. And that was that was also very clever of him at that at that time in the pre-promotion. Um, things to, to think about. We're, we're getting close to the end. Is there one last question? Uh, advice for people... Uh, coming out of a pandemic, what are you doing at the moment that you're, that you're really enjoying? Personal time. Well, I mean, for me personally. Yep. Look, the, I mean, that's the beauty of, of not the beauty of the pandemic. It's one of the the byproducts of the pandemic is that we've had a chance. A lot of us have had a chance to to um, think about who they want to hang out with. Um, um, you know, what what their home means to them, the quality of their their life, the balance between work and and play and and recreation. So it's just right now I'm I'm hoping that all of us um, just start to look at that that priority list of what's important to them and and mix it up and and make sure that we get to to nourish. I know that a lot of struggled so um, through lo- loss of work and and um, or loss of family or um, contracting the virus and it could plague them for, you know, for the rest of their lives. We don't know, but um, it's a, to me, it's about um, making sure that um, you, we all, and for me personally, that I have that, um, that greater appreciation. I think it's, you've been, you were in battle, you know what it's like to then uh, for the, the winter to, to finish in the spring to to come and and so I think we we hopefully as many of us as we can just things that we may have taken for granted and now just um, are just um, not as much and friendships and family and kids and parents and time and walking and your health um, all those things um, yeah I feel like there's always a, a silver lining. Uh, you know, to hard times, and I feel like you've 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 definitely summed that that up well. That reconsidering your priorities and time with your family, I think, is always a good thing. Is that what? You, what was and what's your uh, response to that? That kind well, of well, the same thing. We're we're running pretty hard, you know, um, pre-pandemic. Since then, we've had a mix of good and bad fortune, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity as well. I think there's. Uh, it's thrown a lot of industries and uh, social habits up in the air and how it lands is, you know, there's a lot up for grabs. So I think, um, you know, don't be too dismayed. There's a lot of great opportunities out there now. Mm. 
yeah, it's, it's about being proactive. I mean, it's a, it's frustrating. Um, every, everyone has the choice to get vaccinated. Um, my wife and mm. I, we've, we, we've already been had both vaccinations, but um, we have the choice. But for people to only react to get vaccinated because um, Delta strain is now running rampant through um, through through society, and therefore we're more at risk. It's about going, what am I going to be proactive about? What, what, am, what am I going to really go for? Um, and rather than just be a, be a reaction to, to your numbers, because of the rest, that just means that you're not being listening to what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, and I respect and understand that some people do not want to do that and they're putting themselves and maybe their loved ones at risk for not vaccinating. That's their choice. Um, we're, not, we're not going to be uh, forcing people here. I know it's coming right this week about... Would you force people to be vaccinated at work? Um, no, but um, it comes with risks. Oh, Mark, we could keep talking, but thank <laughs> you so much and congratulations on your book. Um, is it going to be a trilogy? Is it the Lord of the Rings? Um, there's definitely so there's definitely another one in there. I think right. I've just got to like summon the uh, you know <laughs> summon the steel myself to do it again. Yeah, good, good <laughs> on you. Well, you know what you've got to do. Um, you've been there and done that, and that's what life's all about. So, congrats on your career and your transformation, <clears throat> and we look forward to hearing of your, your future success. Thanks, Tony. I'm a huge fan of Booktopia and uh, really appreciate everything you're doing and also for, for having my own stuff, uh, you know, for sale too. So thanks for everything. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.